Since the beginning of time, man has been obsessed with unlocking the secrets of the universe. It doesn't take long in our Bibles, uh, about 11 chapters, where we read about the Tower of Babel and how man decided he was going to build a tower to the heavens. In present day, we have, we have men like Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk who, who have now entered what can be termed the space race, right? And these are men of unfathomable wealth. I think about it, like how rich do you have to be to go to someone and say, uh, build me a spaceship, I wanna go to space, and they don't think you're crazy, right? I mean, it takes a lot of money. But if, if I'm being honest, if I'm perceiving them correctly, they seem bored. They seem restless. It seems like, like they had set themselves to, to a purpose. That purpose was, um, was accumulating as much as they could. They seem like men who, who, if they believed it was possible, that they could build it. They seemed like men, uh, though, who lacked fulfillment where they're at. There's something about us guys that when we when we think about the heavens, when we think about outer space, we go to this, this uh, unknowable universe. It stretches our imagination. We don't focus on the, on the known, but the unknown, right? And in a way, that's good. It, it promotes creativity. It promotes innovation. But it's bad if we lose sight of what is known. And so David is here in Psalm 19 because when he viewed creation, he didn't focus on what was unknown, but his mind focused clearly on what was seen, what could be perceived, and it spurred him on to know and to experience his creator more. See, David was a man of many skills. He had many jobs, right? Uh, the first time we hear about David is he's a shepherd. He's, he's shepherding his father's flocks. He was a warrior, a great warrior. He was a musician to the king. He was the king himself. But none of these were David's purpose. None of these fulfilled him. And there's no way of, of pinpointing when he wrote Psalm 19 of knowing an exact moment in his, in his life that spurred his thoughts here. But I like to think that he was, he was thinking back to the times in his life when he was out shepherding his father's flocks. Those nights that he spent out there all night long, and all he could do was, was view the heavens and hear God speak to him all night long. I think about those nights that he must have spent uh, chasing after uh, sheep that had gone astray or, or perhaps a predator uh, that was threatening his father's flocks. And that promise of God that he understood that, that soon the sun would be up, that the sun would rise shortly and everything would be all right. C.S. Lewis said this of, of the psalm. He said, it is the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. This psalm is, is so full of theological concepts. We, we see God's omnipotence, his all power, his omniscience, that he's all-knowing, his omnipresence, he's everywhere. 
But we also see that God is transcendent. He's a, he's a far away creator, but that he's also imminent, desiring to be close to us. And I believe it's these characteristics that, that David was perceiving that prompted him to worship God through writing this psalm. And he says all of this without losing its poetic beauty. It's as, it's as if David is writing a textbook in the form of a poem. And so we pick it up in verse 1. And we, we pick it up on an emphatic note, really. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. He says that they declare, that they proclaim. These are assertive words. These are words that are more than just David saying that, that they speak or, or they tell a truth. No, these are authoritative. They're bold. They're boastful. They're boasting of the work that God has done, the greatness of who God is and what he has done. And so David here refers to God as Elohim. And he does it just once in the psalm where he, he refers to God as Elohim. It's an impersonal name, but, but it's a name that it emphasizes or, or uh, the power of God, that God is sovereign over creation, that he possesses ultimate power or supreme power over it. And moving on from there in verses two through four, he introduces a paradox because he says this. He says, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. It's a paradox because he's saying that creation speaks to us and yet not in audible words. I think of it this way. I think many of us, we, we take for granted the sunrises and the sunsets. Many of us in here probably you're probably saying, well, I go to work when it's dark and I go home when it's dark. But it's, but it's those moments of the sunrises and the sunsets, those moments that take our breath away, that we experience the glory of God, that we see it in his creation. I think about the warm summer nights that we've had and the starry nights where you can look out at the stars at night and you can see one star shoot across the sky and burn out on the other end. And you recognize that it was God's hand that set that star in motion. Or in the fall, as the leaves are beginning to die and they, and they change color, but in their death, they're showing the beauty of God, the goodness of God, and the beauty of the leaves changing color. Or, or a snowflake, how each snowflake is different. It has a different design. And when you think about if God would take the time to design the snowflake, what does he have designed for my life? We, we've heard it said that a picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, but some of the greatest painters in the history of the world didn't sign their paintings. Van Gogh, or Da Vinci, didn't sign his paintings. And, and Vincent Van Gogh, he only signed 
uh, the ones that he planned to sell. So it makes authenticating their work difficult. There are steps that have to go through to authenticate it. But David is saying, here in creation, God's name is written all over it. The great thing about it is, is that there's no translator, there's no interpreter that's needed. It says the same thing to us that it does to every nation of the world. And in fact, it says the same thing to us that it did to David thousands of years ago. And David pays particular attention to the sun. He says, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Ancient Near Eastern culture viewed the sun uh, as the source of life. That it was from the sun that we gained life. And therefore, they viewed it as a deity. They, they worshipped it as a god. And what David is saying, that is the most prominent member of the heavens, of the skies, that it actually points to the one who created it. It points to God. Without the sun, uh, nothing on this planet could move or live or breathe. It drives our weather, our ocean currents, our seasons, our climate. And God put it in the sky. But in verse 5, he gives us two analogies. He gives us, one, the analogy of a bridegroom. The idea here being that the bridegroom is bright, he's vibrant, he's full of life, and he's eager with anticipation and love for his bride. The other is, is as a runner. Here in a couple weeks, the Olympics will begin, and I think of, of those 100-meter sprinters. Their eyes are focused on the finish line, and they run with power and determination to get there. And furthermore, you might underline this, he says, nothing is hidden from its heat. We all can recall a couple weeks ago when it was 115 degrees, right? <laughs> I, I tell you, there, there is no running from that heat. I tried to stand in the shade outside just to see, and it, it did nothing. It didn't cool me down. You could jump in a, in a cold pool, a, a cold body of water, and that might cool you down, but when you get out, the sign of the sun is still there in the form of a sunburn. It exposes everything. And here's the problem. Here's the problem that we have when we view creation. In Romans chapter 1, starting at the end of verse 18, he says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth? He's speaking, Paul is speaking here of mankind, that we suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We come up with with pretty creative ways to explain the universe. We give the glory of God to to other gods, or, or, or we say that God may exist, but, but he can't be known. There's this show on, uh, on the History Channel. So right there, you know it's, it's a factual documentary. Like it, it, they wouldn't spread lies. But it's called Ancient Aliens. <laughs> yeah, some of us out here look like we probably watch it a few times. But I was watching this episode, and they were going through the creation of man. And they, in the show, they, they referenced a, a study put out by the University of Chicago in 2004. And in that study, uh, they said that, that there was a special event that occurred in the evolution of the human brain. A special, a special event some 50,000 years ago that took mankind from being grunting hominids to being speaking hominids. And naturally, it was the show's stance that it was the aliens interfering with human genetics that spurred this special event. Pretty creative. But, and yet, they had people in the show that have letters next to their names. You'd think that they, you know, they were pretty smart. But it's as if God is here in creation, screaming, yelling, here I am, here I am, come find me. And man in his rebellion has turned his ears and hardened his heart from God. But David says that if it's God in creation saying, here I am, come find me, it's in his word that we hear his soft still voice saying, here I am, here I am. Because God has revealed himself in his word. Creation does enough to leave us with no excuse. But the word is necessary in order to clarify the character of who God is and why we need him. So in this section of scripture, David is not just giving us information about God, like like the back of his baseball card. His tone has changed. He wants us to know that God is knowable. He wants us to experience God. And so if in verse 1 he used the, the name Elohim to refer to God, Here we see a a change of of tone, a change of demeanor. David no longer refers to God as Elohim, but he refers to him as Yahweh seven times in the rest of this psalm. He's not just saying that God is powerful, but that he desires to be close to us. He desires a personal relationship with us as we experience him through his creation and through his word. 
So in verse 7, we read, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And from this point on, in the next few verses, he says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. He gives a list of synonyms as we go through here for the law of the Lord. He's not talking about just the Ten Commandments. He's referring to the fully revealed will of God in the scripture that he had at the time, in the Bible that he had at the time. But first and foremost, what we see in verse 7 is that the law of the Lord revives the soul. The word of God imparts new life. And so if the Son is the physical life giver, then the word is the spiritual life giver. And the word makes wise the simple. It's not, he's not referring to unintelligent people, but, but those who come to God as humble children to gain instruction and to gain understanding. The word is authoritative and precise. It's morally right, and it illuminates the eyes of the spiritually blind, and it's dependable truth. We live in, in this world of, of half-truths, of insincerities, of false realities. We see that the, the truth is bent for political or financial or social uh, gain. And to be honest, we've, we've gone through a tumultuous year and a half. We've gone through this, this hard pandemic, a difficult election, social unrest. And that's just the things that we've experienced as a community, as a global community. Not to mention what else we've had go on in our lives, the, the personal issues that we've had go on. And so how do we discern what is good and right? And it's the word of God that equips the people of God to make godly decisions. It's when we go from creation to God's word that we see that God is equipping his people. It doesn't give us the answers, but determines for us, helps us to determine a God-honoring course. The word is the only thing that we can depend on as right, as trustworthy, and as righteous altogether. But there's one synonym that doesn't seem to fit. It's the fear of the Lord. It doesn't seem to fit. But it's not referring to the word itself, but its effect. The word of God doesn't lead us into bad, corrupt thinking or, or making wicked, evil decisions, but it gives us a more acute awareness for the reverence of God of who God is. Because we cannot learn from the word of God unless we have a proper attitude to the God of the word. We have reverence for who God is and what he has done. 
And it leads us to an attitude of joyful obedience to God and his word. We've experienced God. We've experienced his goodness. We've tasted and seen that he is good. And so David is writing these words really from a background of of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. He's writing this before the New Testament uh, writers. He's he's writing this before a lot of, of the Old Testament prophets had even been born. And he says, he's coming from that background. In the beginning, God created. And then we read in Genesis 1, 1, or in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The emphasis here is not on the how of creation, but the who of creation. We see in Scripture that that God reveals Himself in His works, in His Word, and in His Son. Further, we, we read in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. We see that that God has spoken to us. And if we look back at at chapter 19 of the the psalm, verse 2, it says, Day to day pours out speech. God has spoken of himself in his works. God has spoken of himself in his word, and God has spoken of himself in his son. And if God is going to speak to us, if God is going to continue to elaborate, to, to, to fulfill his word through his, his, his son, then we should listen. David says there's much warning if we live contrary to the word of God. But he says that the rewards are abundant and they're sweet. Those who live in light of Jesus as God's revealed word are given life. They're made wise. They're brought joy. And they're given sight for their spiritual blindness. But these are just some of the benefits of the reward. Verse 10, he says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. This runs contrary to what our society says. Our society says that we should accumulate not just wealth, but generational wealth and possessions. There's this song, this country song that says, uh, money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you a boat. (laughs) That's what our society says. 
If your money's not making you happy, just buy something new and you'll, you'll have this fleeting passion for something. But it's, it's that mindset that our culture says to set your purpose to. But David is saying that having a relationship with Christ is what's most important. And we can have that because God can be known and experienced through his works and word. I think of the times that I, I've, I've gone hunting with my dad. And to be honest, we never get anything. Unless, unless you count that one season that I ran over the possum, then I, <laughs> then I guess you could say I got something. But it's those, those drives up the mountain, those, those times walking into to where we're hunting, that we get to know each other deeper. And the older we've gotten, the more our relationship has changed. It's not what it was when I was a kid. It's, it's different. It's changed. It's better. And I think about David, how, how when he got to know God deeper, the more he experienced God's goodness, the more his attitude and his heart changed. David is here saying that revelation requires a response. We begin to see David's response in verses 12 and 13. He says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David is asking God for a clean, a clean slate. He wants his sin gone. He refers to the, the sins that he committed in ignorance, those, those sins that he didn't even know he committed. And he speaks of the presumptuous sins, the sins that he willfully committed against God. He's desiring for them to be gone so that he can have a close relationship with God. God had brought conviction of sin because nothing is hidden from God. This is the spiritual complement to verse 6, where it says, Nothing is hidden from the Son. David's goal, his purpose, was to be innocent and blameless in order that his worship would be acceptable in God's sight. God's works and his word lead to worship. He says in verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This week, I had the opportunity on Monday to, to hike the enchantments. And it was a, it was a difficult day. It, it was more difficult than we imagined it would be. We thought that it would take about 12 or 13 hours, and it took us 18 and a half it was a humbling experience, um, one that I don't want to live through again. But at the same time, it seems to me that the deeper that I get into creation, the harder I have to work to get somewhere, the more appreciative of the beauty that surrounds me. I remember the view from the top of, of Asgard Pass there, 
And I remember looking down and, and seeing lakes that were hidden in between mountain peaks. You don't get there without a difficult journey. And I just remember praising God for his majesty, for his goodness, for his greatness, that he could create something so amazing. I think of of the Westminster Catechism that says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him is is a purpose that never gets boring or mundane, that we can go to his word, that we can go into his creation and we can experience him in new ways and learn and know him in new ways each day. It's worth more than gold. It's, it's sweeter than honey. We can enjoy the rewards of a life devoted to God's word and experience closeness with the knowable God. But revelation requires a response. Maybe you're here today and and you're grappling with some of these questions. What your purpose is? How, How did we get here? That maybe when you view creation, your, your mind stretches to what's unknown rather than what can be known. And David is here saying that the secret to understanding is found in no one but Jesus Christ. David is inviting us to respond by diving into his word with an open heart and an open mind. You may be here today because that's what you do, right, on Sundays. You're a Christian, so you go to church. That's, a lot of times, that's me. That I'm going through the motions, I, I just have to go to church. But you're not experiencing that closeness with God. Maybe it's because of sin. Maybe it's because, not necessarily of the presumptive sin, the sin that we know is there, but maybe there's sin in our life that's become so characteristic of of how we live that we don't even recognize it anymore. David is saying that the response is to ask for forgiveness because God is the only one who can declare us innocent. And that's... A lot of time that's me. I think I'm good. I'm good, God. I mean, no one knows about this sin in my life. Why do I need to get rid of it? It's not hurting anyone. But it's God saying, no, you're not good. Maybe you're here today and and you're great with God. And that's awesome. That's awesome. But David is calling us to a response of worship. He wants us to remove the hindrances from our lives so that we can come before God in worship that is acceptable in his sight. He says, let the words of my mouth 
and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's David's goal for himself. That's David's goal for us. And it's not just David's goal for us. It's God's goal for us. Let's pray.